You're listening to Table for Ten Billion, a limited podcast series from the World Bank examining the most important issues in food and agriculture. Climate change isn't coming, it's already here. We see it in heat waves and droughts, fires and torrential rain. Today on the show, we look at how these changes affect the food system and find out that maybe it's not all bad news. Joining me today is Eric Fernandez. He's the lead agriculture specialist at the bank, although actually you recently retired, is that right? Correct, yes. I was hoping you could take us through how climate change is affecting the food system, both particular, a particular instance maybe and how it's affecting things more broadly. Yeah, no, the, the climate change has been an issue for several decades now in, in the development dialogue, in research programs as well, because it has become increasingly obvious how humans are impacting the climate. As temperatures increase, various biogeochemical cycles, whether it's nutrients, whether it's how carbon and water circulate, and what happens with biodiversity being impacted in different ways. And, and all these uh, factors are important to uh, agriculture, agroecosystems, and natural systems, be they rainforests, be they lakes, rivers, marine seas, oceans, and those impacts on these systems then cascade into our farming systems and food systems. Then, you know, whether you're planting rice or you're planting corn, or whether you have cattle or goats or pigs, all of those um, animals and organisms and the farmers themselves become uh, impacted. And a simple one recently that came to my came to light is just how as temperatures go up, it just becomes more difficult to work in the field. Because especially in, in, in many of the countries where mechanization is not is not a great part of farming, it's manual labor. And if you've been out in the heat and humidity, the ability to function over periods of time gets less and less. And uh, that is a huge uh, factor in the productivity equation. And so recently there was a, an example from Indonesia where rice farmers were harvesting their, their crops at night because it was too hot for them to actually be in the fields during the day. So that's an early indication of how humans are having to adapt against some of these changes that are happening. But it's not just the case of humans having to adapt. The crops themselves are adapting, but not necessarily in a good way, right? Could you explain the linkage between climate change and lower nutritional values? I I just don't get it. I don't know how it works. Yeah, it's not a simple relationship, clearly. But what the scientists are finding is that as carbon dioxide levels increase in the atmosphere, the way the plants take up that carbon dioxide and then the biochemical processes in the plants can result in a reallocation of some of these important nutrients in the plants. So instead of going to the grain, it may not go to the grain. So they're finding things like protein levels, micronutrients, and other nutrients could suddenly change in the edible parts of the crops in which in rice and corn are the grains. And so in some of these crops, we are finding now evidence based on experiments 
that largely scientists have done under controlled conditions. So they have an enclosed space where they raise the levels of carbon dioxide, and then they can actually accurately measure what happens relative to a control. Plants that are growing in an enclosure where the levels of carbon dioxide are normal, shall we say. And uh, by comparison, you can actually see that certain crops, you're, you're decreasing both the, the protein levels in some cases and in other cases, the micronutrients. And that's important because the, we keep saying as population increases, we need to produce more food. And uh, okay, we're producing more food, but if it's less nutritious, then we're back to square one almost because the more food doesn't mean the same level of nutrition and quality. And so that's an important. Now, this may be happening in also in, in pasture grasses. I mean, the verdict is still out, but people are looking at this uh, carefully. And there are ways, it turns out, that we can mitigate that by changing the way we manage our crops, the way the, well, the inputs we use in our crops, etc. So I think uh, that's something to, to keep an eye on. And scientists, uh, especially agricultural scientists and colleagues in the CGIAR, the consultative group of international agricultural centers uh, that the bank works closely with, are on top of this. They're looking at this uh, very carefully across the range of important staple food crops for us across the globe. So you're saying that this could have a major impact on livestock as well, if uh, it's affecting pasture. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, because now this may come from two, from at least two different so uh, sources. These impacts. One could be the actual nutritional quality of the pasture. So if that pasture is not as nutritious in terms of protein content, in terms of digestibility, it gets more fibrous. The cattle eats it, but it doesn't have the same nutritional impact in the cattle. And so from a livestock nutrition perspective, that's important. The other point, of course, is the, the physical impact on livestock. Can they graze effectively? Uh, does that same kind of heat level reduce productivity as temperatures go up? And we know that happens. And, and the third area that we're seeing increasing impacts are from as these environmental conditions change, some of the pests are beginning to move. And so you're getting a rearrangement of pest occupation, as it were, or ranges of, of where they would normally occur. And you can get new pests for livestock, for humans, and that's another way productivity can be decreased. It's really this range of interactions that are taking place you have latitudinal differences, whether you're closer to the equator, whether you're further away. You have altitudinal differences. So even on the equator in the mountainous regions, you didn't used to have things like malaria and dengue, and all of a sudden mosquitoes are moving up into the higher altitudes now. And so that could be impacting uh, humans, not so much livestock, but there are livestock pests that whose ranges might also be changing, and we might start to see more of those impacting. So productivity across the range could be impacted negatively. Now, there are some areas where productivity could be impacted positively. And we're seeing that in areas, especially in the further away from the equator, where it used to be too cold in, in many areas in, in Europe and Central Asia, for example, conditions are now getting better so that you could actually grow some crops that you couldn't before. And that's something to, to keep in mind. Now, is that going to be enough to overcome the deficits from some of the negatively impacted regions? Unlikely, but we are still, scientists are still looking into that. So how does that affect the crops that we eat? It, it's kind of a limited variety, right? 
And therein lies a sort of a catch-22, is that humanity seems to be reliant on three grass species and two roots. Corn, rice, and wheat are the major grass species. And uh, potato and, and maybe sweet potato or cassava and sweet potato are some of the important roots, as is potato. And that's a handful of food species, right? And uh, if those are impacted, and they are being impacted, we know now from research data that's available across the world, then uh, that has an immediate impact on, on food and uh, food systems. One way out of that then is to say, how can we diversify food systems so that we have a range of other crops and there are thousands of edible species that haven't been developed to the extent of these three grasses and two roots or three roots. And, and that's largely a function of agribusiness wanting to have those important value chains um, that they can manage and ensure that people have enough food in the right place at the right time. But it goes back to that too few eggs in, or too many eggs in one basket. And, and then if something happens to that food basket, then you have a problem. And increasingly, scientists are now looking at how we can tap into some of these other very nutritious species that can be adapted in a landscape that produces food and nutrients for humans, for livestock, for whatever in the agroecosystem. So those landscapes would be much more resilient in terms of being able to withstand some of these shocks that are coming down in the next few decades. So that's that would be an adaptation strategy to, to climate change. Can we harness the hundreds, if not thousands of food species, pasture species that could potentially be improved, made suitable for cropping and, and farming systems? And that would be uh, one way to do it. If we're talking about changing people's diets, I mean, that makes me think that we're talking about a fairly dire situation. Just how dramatic are some of these changes that need to be made? And how are we keeping track of what's going on now? There's an important uh, way that uh, we are keeping abreast of what's happening is that often one thinks of climate change as a continuous process, but with large impacts, something suddenly gets very dry or something gets extremely wet. And uh, we know that these extreme events are increasing both in terms of frequency and, and in intensity in some areas, not in maybe not in all areas. And understanding where those extreme events are likely to increase in frequency or, or, or intensity is really important because that allows us to proactively uh, manage better the, the agroecosystems uh, that give us our food and, and nutrients. But the other thing that's uh, something we've been doing in the bank is tracking through good scientific principles and, and, and tools how weather is changing. And it only takes a small change of a matter of weeks in some cases at a critical part of a cropping season to dramatically alter yields or quality. And it has been very difficult to do that because very few countries have enough weather data to give us that kind of information. But would it be fair to say that that's changing now? now more recently, we, we have been able to access extremely high resolution weather data that is being generated from a combination of satellite information, ground stations, and then using big data and artificial intelligence techniques to generate data where you don't even have a ground station. And uh, we've actually looked at the quality of that data and it's very good. 
And so we've been able to say, look, instead of having just 3,000 weather stations over the whole continent of Africa, here are 300,000 virtual weather stations, and we can calibrate them against every ground station you have, and that they're between 87 and 95% of accuracy in terms of the data. And with that level of data, you can then be much more proactive in deciding what crops or which varieties do you need to shift your cropping season operations because farmers are used to doing things at certain times of the year and if there's a sudden deviation of about a week or two there's a dry season that suddenly pops up 10 days after you've sowed the seed those seedlings are extremely susceptible to that dry season that never used to be there before but for a variety of reasons you just don't have the data and to be able to say that and now we, we've been able to do that. So one of the things before I retired we were doing at the bank is we set up this ag observatory where we were looking across the planet, across the terrestrial surface of the planet and sending out alerts to our, our teams saying, hey, look, this is changing dramatically. Over the last 15 years, we're able to plot at nine kilometers by nine kilometers for the last 15 years what the trend is. And we said, look, it's getting too dry. You need to move out of this species and and warn and look at what other alternatives you have or watch this particular start of the rainy period is changing it's now two weeks later so the farmers need to be aware of that or it's two weeks earlier do they have enough seed left they have uh, do people who are supplying the inputs are they aware of this can they supply the inputs ahead of time rather than the normal time and the same sort of thing with harvests and all you can see when things are changing and so uh, the harvest is important because that's where food loss and waste becomes so dramatic. Because if you're harvesting stuff and it's raining, then you could get spoilage. You can get mycotoxins in the grain. And that is very bad for, for food systems, right? When you start to get those mycotoxins in there, I mean, you basically cannot use that grain for anything. Yeah, you can't feed it a livestock. You can't do You can't eat it. And if you're not aware of that, then losing and that food loss and waste contributes about eight percent of, of greenhouse gases just how high are rates of food loss and waste it could be as high as 30 percent in some countries at the field stage and in in some of the developed countries it's about the same but it's in the once it gets into your refrigerator you just don't get to it in time it spoils and then you throw it all out how do we get that kind of information out to the people who really need it yeah. Now, in the decades ago, it was radio. And often farmers would just listen to the radio at, on a certain day at a certain hour. And somebody would be speaking to them about weather and seeds. And do you plant now? Hold your seed. Don't plant now. Do you apply fertilizer? No, don't apply it now because it looks like you might get a rain, a really heavy rainstorm. And, and that's going to wash away all the stuff. And just that kind of information decades ago had dramatic impacts on, on, on success or failure for farming systems. And based on data from Southern Africa, there were some very good examples out of Zimbabwe, out of Kenya, out of East Africa and West Africa also, where farmers had some advanced warning that could, that could make a huge difference. Now, of course, people have smartphones they have other ways of accessing information. The digital transformation, analog to di digital, is huge. If it's prob uh, properly targeted, it's properly 
set up so that everybody benefits, not just a small part of that value chain benefits. You're listening to Table for 10 Billion. We'll be back in just a second. And we're back with the World Bank's Eric Fernandez, and we're talking about climate change and agriculture. Altogether, you actually have a virtuous cycle. You have foods that might actually be easier to grow or uh, during climate change, as climate changes, and you actually get people more variety. That's right. And so all along the value chain, there are some good things that are coming our way, as well as some of the negatives that we all know about. Correct. Yeah. I mean, so, and and that's the sort of term that people use often quite loosely. So how do you adapt to to climate change? And this is what we've been talking about is various strategies to say, look, we know that nutritional qualities might be impacted, are being impacted. We know that quantities might change. We know that some fruits you won't be able to grow or foods you won't be able to grow and you might have to bring in, bring them from a long distance away, or you might shift and grow something else. And, and so, so those are all adaptive approaches to coping with this. The mitigation angle is how do you reduce emissions? How do you reduce that movement of carbon from the soil and from the plant biomass into the atmosphere? Because plants are the original carbon sequesters. They've been taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it in the biomass and putting it in the soil. And um, the soil holds a lot of carbon. And uh, if we don't manage that soil well, it's bad for farming and food because we, the soil is not in good quality or in good condition. Then you, the produce is often of poor quality. Either you don't produce enough or the qual- you don't have the right levels of nutrients in there. So managing our soils, whether it's through inputs, fertilizers and other inputs that we use to keep pests away from our key crops has been one way we've been treading a fine line to ensure we've got good production, good quality, without having too many negative impacts. And, and that's one way. The other way is just how you manage your soil, you protect it, and you use more legumes that fix nitrogen biologically instead of nitrogen fertilizer that's prepared synthetically. And, and increasingly, we're looking at, at options for how most of the nitrogen fertilizer that's produced today depends on a process that was developed in the early 1900s. It's a chemical process. It takes nitrogen out of the air and makes it available through a variety of processes into ammonia-based fertilizer. But it's extremely energy expensive. It uses a lot of fossil fuel in the manufacture. It uses natural gas as a feedstock. And it's relatively poorly efficient or not very efficient when you apply it to the soils. And even worse is that what is not used in the case of nitrogen may be converted to nitrous oxide, which is an extremely potent greenhouse gas. It's almost 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide. Not only are you using a lot of energy to make that nutrient, which is important for our food systems, but then when you use it, it's not very efficient or we don't use it effectively. And then it contributes to more greenhouse gases. So it's, we have to find a different way to do that. And um, increasingly scientists now looking for options to that process. It's called the Haber-Bosch process that was developed in Germany in the early 1900s. And we still use it today. It's, I often say I have an old bike, but it's not a 1900s model. How many many drives a 1900 model car, even if they existed, they didn't 
that's that's the way we're sort of mitigating, trying to ensure that we keep the carbon where it's supposed to be. We try and reduce it uh, from our input manufacturers, manufacturing and how we use inputs. And, and that uh, so on, on the one hand, you're mitigating. On the other hand, you're adapting and you're keeping productivity going because we do need to produce food in the right amounts at the right place. And all of that is, comes together under the term climate smart agriculture. You'll often hear it used, climate smart agriculture. And, and that's the context is that we use uh, agriculture that mitigates greenhouse gas emissions, that adapts, uses adaptive processes to cope with the changes that are coming or are already present. And, and at the same time, keeps productivity moving upwards or in the direction we need it. Uh, for with the right quality. And it uses agroecological principles. It uses permaculture, agroforestry. Those are the approaches that you use. There's often a little bit of pushback. Why are you calling this climate smart agriculture? Does that mean it's a label? And, it, it, and this is what it implies. And there are various ways to be climate smart, to be aware that you're not causing the problem through emitting more gases. You're dealing with the problem by adapting it through better management of soils, crops, newer varieties, newer species, mixtures of trees and crops and to shade some of the crops, to shade the livestock, silvopastoral systems. And as we were talking, if heat is a problem, then shade becomes quite important. And managing shade for temperatures and shade for light, which is what crops need, is the way to organize the cropping systems from field scale to landscape scale. But what do you do about other aspects of climate change? Um, huge swings and storms and fires and things like that. All of that then works into sort of how do you deal with these intense rainstorms that come? A lot of water hitting the soil. And if you've got some of these adaptive systems, you promote infiltration rather than surface runoff. And so that water then filters into the soil it prevents the loss of topsoil where a lot of the carbon is, where a lot of the nutrients are. It prevents sedimentation downstream. And especially if phosphorus moves off, that can cause uh, terrible algal pollution in, in freshwater systems. And often you hear about our lakes and, 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 and streams and coastal zones becoming eutrophic. Too, too, much, too many nutrients there that promotes these algal blooms that takes the oxygen out of the water and creates dead zone. And the number of dead zones across the globe have been growing up tremendously. So you lose the fish production. You lose all the economies of coastal zones. You've lost a lot from your terrestrial zone. So you see, as you were saying, how do we become more efficient? How do we be more circular in our economies? That's really the goal of, of better management of climate smart management, climate smart agriculture. Eric Fernandez, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. been listening to Table for 10 Billion, 
a production of the World Bank. We'll see you again soon.